Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, today we have my friend Kat Gordon on, and and Kat and I sort of met in one of those funny, synchronous types of ways that often happens with friends. I'd been in Napa a short time, and I realized my friend Shasta Nelson was here, and Shasta and I were connecting, and I started talking about tennis. She's like, oh my God, you've got to meet my friend Kat Gordon. She's like a tennis fanatic, and she's just moved to Napa. And I'm like, wait, I think I did meet her in a tennis clinic. And so it was just one of those funny things, like we were tested to meet. So I'm so excited to welcome Kat to the podcast today. And before I let her jump in, I thought I would just tell everybody a little bit about her. Kat is the founder and director of the 3% Movement. I'm going to let Kat really tell the story of 3% in a few minutes. But from my understanding, she noticed there was a lack of female leadership in creative directors and really moved to fill that void. Kat is many, many things, but she also serves on the board of the Representation Project, is an advisor to 600 and Rising, WPP, and Empower Work. She is passionate about elevating the contributions of women and people of color, especially as they relate to innovation. You only have to take one peek at her website and just be incredibly impressed with the assembly of amazing talent that she has working with her. And it Let's be honest, most of those pages, when you look at the about page of most organizations, look very different. And I'll let, I'll let Kat tell that story in a moment. But she currently also serves as the creative entrepreneur in residence at 11, working to rethink the creative process, workflow, and client engagement to build internal cultures and external messaging that embraces everyone. Kat is a fabulous writer, and you'll find some of her great posts on LinkedIn and in other places. But really, I'd love for you to tell your story a little bit. So Kat, can you just tell us a bit about your journey, points along the way that maybe you had some kind of ahas and and what really brought you to this moment right now? Mm, Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Yeah, I mean, I want to start with my age because I feel like that's something that women never start with, or they're always kind of trying to dance around it. And I think ageism is a huge problem. So I'm 56 years old, newly divorced, newly empty nested, if that's such a thing, and really happy. I feel more like myself than I ever have before. And that is, I think the goal of life is to become the person you're supposed to be. So I'm feeling a lot of transformation in my life. Some of that can be destabilizing, but I'm also feeling the truest version of me. And that feels really grounding. What a beautiful thing. A lot of people will go through what you've been through with uprooting your life and your kids leaving the house and going through a divorce and all of that. And that can, to your point, can be incredibly destabilizing, but you're sort of emerging with those butterfly wings fluttering. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And very worthy of celebration. Thank you. Yes, it feels good. And and I also share it because I suspect there are probably some listeners who might be still in a place where they sense they're not in the right environment for themselves to flourish. And they might be blaming themselves instead of their surroundings. So I think the inquiry about where can I flourish is a really good thing for everyone to be thinking about throughout their lives. And I finally feel like I've kind of unlocked that 
riddle for myself. So that's really gratifying. And then, I mean, you talked a bit about my professional life. I'm someone who's always had a very creative focus. When I was a a little girl, I was fascinated by pen pals. I used to write them letters. I had one in Japan. I had one in Colorado. Um, At one point I had one in the Netherlands and also kept diaries and read all the time. And so I was definitely someone who loved other people's stories. It was always very motivating to me. And so I guess it's no surprise that I found myself as an advertising copywriter, which is kind of marrying the two worlds of understanding how to be persuasive with people, how to understand their needs and wants, and then also being good with words. And so I've worked inside the advertising business for a very long time as a creative director. And as Anne said, I noticed a huge discrepancy in my field. I was an advertising creative director at a time when only 3% of creative directors were female. So if you've watched Mad Men, that means there were 97 Don Drapers for every three Donna Drapers. And um, that's a problem because if you look at the consumer buying audience, it's largely female and it's multicultural and multi-ethnic. And so it's ridiculous to have um, all of the ideas come through one prism. So I've been on a crusade to try to diversify the advertising industry, especially on the creative side, and started the 3% movement 10 years ago. So we've had a dramatic impact on what creative departments look like currently in America. And it's awesome. And the ideas are better. And I think people are having more fun, including the white men. So (laughs) that's a bit about me. There's so much in what you just said, but I am really interested to hear you talk a little bit more about what that was like for you navigating this very male-dominated world as you were on your crusade that can't have been completely smooth sailing or without some of its challenges. And so I'm curious just to hear a little bit more about like what inherent strengths did you have that gave you the fortitude to navigate that or what were some of the things about it that were surprisingly hard or easy. I'm just really interested to hear a little bit more about what that process was like for you. Yeah, it's funny. I never internalized that kind of sexism, I suppose. Let's call it what it is. I never thought, oh, I'm not good enough or, oh, I need to try harder. Or I thought more like what's wrong with this environment that they can't see what I'm bringing to the table. So that was my my lens on the world was I know I worked hard to get here. I know I'm really passionate about this work. And so I just can't understand why I don't have more access. And for me, I didn't have dramatic experiences of sexism, although 3% has done research to show that most women do. I had more a sense that I was underestimated a lot, you know, that people just didn't think I could handle the biggest clients or the biggest assignments or, or then even that I'd want to travel once I had kids. And so... I know, Anne, you're a big Enneagram fan, and I'm a number seven. I'm the enthusiastic visionary. I'm always about what's possible. I'm incredibly optimistic. And so I just was always wanting my industry to get better so that I could contribute more. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because you were pretty successful kind of doing your thing. And in fact, you had your own agency, I believe, at a certain point, right? Talk to us a little bit, though, just about that. How do you go from, I've got my clients, I'm doing my thing, I've got my kids, I'm raising my family, and then all of a sudden, I mean, you start this thing, this 3% movement got 
big. And, you know, when you talk to other people in your industry, I mentioned you to some people they are like, oh, wow, that program's so great. And I love that conference. And so I'm just curious, like how you go from that kind of daily, just getting my stuff done and serving my clients. And yeah, sometimes it sort of sucks a little bit because I see these things to starting a movement. Well, I think that the way you do it is that you don't realize you're doing it. <laughs> That's probably right. I had no idea. I remember a piece that was written in Forbes many years ago that said something about me, and I hadn't even been interviewed for the article, but something about, you know, that Kat Gordon set out to establish herself as a thought leader. And I laughed because I was like, no one sets out to establish themselves as a thought leader. People just speak out about things that don't make sense to them and become a magnet for other people that feel the same way. And that is more my story. I did not know that this thing I started would grow into what it has. I did not know how much it would take from me and also give to me. I might've taken a pause had I known all that, but I think it was just a combination of, and I've talked about this before, I lived in Silicon Valley, which is not a major hub for advertising, but as a result, a lot of the clients I worked on were startups or tech companies. And so I was in a lot of rooms where I saw money being thrown at ideas that were not very well thought out because they were coming from the usual suspects. And it was this really good training camp for kind of why couldn't I do that? Because I saw so many other people's ideas that I didn't think were that exceptional being bankrolled. And so I think the 3% conference, which was just a one-day conference, you know, it wasn't like I set out to run this 10-year movement, but I did believe like I could pull it off because I believed in the cause. I believed there were enough other people that felt the way I did. And I also thought, I've seen so many other ideas move forward that weren't as important as this is and as timely as this is. You know, I'm really struck by how much confidence you had in your own abilities, your comment that you never questioned that you weren't good enough. You never questioned that you couldn't do it. You just thought that you were underestimated by other people. And I mean, I wish we could say that, yeah, that's how most women are moving through the world, but that's not really the case. And so I'm curious, where does your confidence come from? Or is it something that showed up when you were a small child or something you cultivated? That was just a lot of confidence you had. It sounds like really early in your career. Yeah. I've thought about that a lot because there are other sectors of my life where I have crisis of confidence. I think it was a sector of my life that I was incredibly well mentored right out of the gate. I mean, the very first job I had after college, I had these two incredible women bosses. And then after that, I had an incredible male boss and people that invested in me and people that believed in me. And maybe even more than trusting myself, I trusted their judgment. My confidence is more about my belief in the values I uphold than in my own kind of worthiness or readiness. It's more, I'm certain I'm right about this needing to change or this not being optimized more than I feel like I'm wearing a superhero cape. I have plenty of doubt about my leadership skills, but I'm really somebody that feels and lives her values very strongly. And so I think it feels like an inevitability to me, some of these things like, yes, the world needs to change in this way. And I'm going to lend my voice and 
that just serves me well. I don't believe in false certainty and leadership about other things in terms of like the times we're living through and all the changes that are happening. I feel like it's super important as a leader right now to be open to possibility and change and transformation and to other people's opinions. But I still think the values piece about what's possible and what will drive the future, that to me is something I've been very steadfast around. And when did that start, do you think? Do you think you've had that since you were a pen pal at, at age 10 or, or whatever? Or was that developed throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, I had somebody recently tell me that they thought I had intuitive powers and I don't want to get too woo-woo here, but... Let's go woo-woo, why not? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get super woo-woo. The night before the very first 3% conference where there was a lot riding on the line and I'd never done this before. And a friend asked me if I was nervous. And I remember I said to her, I don't know how to explain the feeling I have, but I feel like the conference already happened. So it kind of felt like a foregone conclusion or like I'd walked or lived it already. A couple of times that's happened in my life where I have felt like maybe I already had this experience and now I'm having it again. And so, you know, that's not like a piece of advice I can give to somebody and be like, try this at home. (laughs) It's just what happened for me. And so I share it because it's true for me. Do you, have you cultivated that or is it more just like it just shows up and you just have that feeling? I, it just keeps happening. In very recent months, I've started to think, huh, could I make this something that I try to invite even more deeply into my life? And what would it look like? What would I be doing? What practices, what routines or rituals would invite more of that? Because it's very reassuring that feeling when it happens. It makes me feel like I have almost divine protection. I don't know. I don't know why it happens for me. I don't know why I'm awake to it or aware of it. I mean, maybe it happens for everyone, but they're just sleepwalking through their life. And I just tend to notice things. I mean, I use that term a lot that I'm a noticer. And I think all good creative people are. They notice things other people miss. They they notice connections between things that might seem they're from disparate worlds. And this might just be another example of that. Well, what I love about what you just said is that you were completely receptive to it. I mean, I think this happens to people all the time where they get some kind of feeling or they have some kind of experience and they just dismiss it as, yeah, it was weird, right? Or I imagined that, or I couldn't possibly act on that. And so I, I'm i just, just so admire the fact that you were completely receptive to it and look at what happened, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing. I think we understand such a small fraction of how the world really works and how our bodies and minds and spirits work and um, how interconnected they all are. And the more I kind of break through those membranes that we think kind of separate those worlds, it's like watching a higher definition television of your own life. Do you remember the first time you noticed it? You know, not necessarily, but one of my best friends from childhood, her older sister, who obviously I grew up around, whenever something in her life happens, that's like coincidental or kind of unusual. She'll call it a Kathy McCaw. (laughs) That was how I grew up. I was Kathy McCaw. She'll be like, I had the most incredible Kathy McCaw today. I guess I was just someone that either talked a lot about things like that, that were happening to me, or people saw that I tended to have more than my share of them. 
But I love that someone else kind of turned me into a noun, I guess, not a verb. Well, and it's also really cool that nobody ever tried to shut it down in you. Or did they? I mean, you didn't really talk about that. Yeah. I think I picked a really good field to go into for that because what I do as an advertising creative, it's not an exact science. It's not there's one answer and that you need to defend it in front of a group of your peers. It's a much more fluid and human and juicy and um, open-ended pursuit being a creative. And so I think I haven't met a lot of resistance because I'm in a field that welcomes the edges of who we are and how we think. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that that has been your experience since we started with the fact that this particular industry hasn't always been as welcoming of non-white, non-male, right? And so is that an evolution, do you think? Or is it that within sort of the Don Drapers of the world, some of that creativity, some of that more edgy, maybe a little out on the fringe woo-woo was welcome, it's as long as you kind of were six feet two and fit into a 42 long. <laughs> well, I think you touch on what I think the answer to that question is. I think one of the reasons why women, especially as creative leaders, have been discounted, overlooked, is because we haven't been given full permission to bring our complete lived experience to the concepting phase. If you look at you know, men who are the status quo, especially in advertising, they don't edit themselves. They don't edit any of their life experiences. They bring all of it to bear and just kind of think it's relevant and welcome. Whereas women are trying to work their way into an industry that is not built for them. And so I think we edit ourselves or we don't bring our full lived experience. Exactly the same goes true for people of color who have amazing life stories and histories and ancestry and all sorts of life experiences to draw upon, which is just Mecca for creative ideation, but you haven't been given permission. And so I think that the more that women feel that their presence is desired and that their life experience is relevant, which it totally is, then I think the ideas get more and more dimensional and interesting. And so for a long time, recruiters would say they didn't think the portfolios of young female creatives were as good as those of men. And there were just as many young women vying for those jobs, but they, it's like they were holding themselves back and I did as well. And so, I mean, the fact that I just shared all the like woo woo nuttiness of my life, (laughs) I don't know when I was 25, 30, first of all, I wouldn't have been that awake to it, but would I have shared it? Probably not. But I'm at a point where I think I have nothing left to prove. I think I can be free. And so the more that everyone that shows up in a creative leading role doesn't feel like they have anything to prove, the more they're just going to bring their full unfiltered self. And that's what we want. That's beautiful. I think that's such a powerful message for all of our listeners who are women or people of color or have a different lived experience. Your comment that allowing yourself to put value on your story and your experiences and not waiting until you think you've earned the right to do it will just pay benefits like multifold. There's not some magic age, right? Or amount of experience that says, okay, you are now allowed to use all of you. And I think that's just such a powerful message for everyone who's listening. Well, and to build on that, where I'm getting curious is, so Kat, you said I'm at an age where I don't have anything left to prove, but how do we push this down 
lower within organizations outside of the creative world? How do we make it more accessible for people to bring their whole selves, to bring everybody, their entire lived experience, as you sort of put it, without having to wait until they hit some magic number or fabulous title or something? Is there what thoughts do you have on how we how we expand that out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not necessarily the duty of the individual. It's the duty of the leaders inside of companies and universities and any other organizations. I always bring it back to kind of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And there's psychological safety that has to exist for people to feel they can show up and bring their full unfiltered self, especially in creative industries, because any idea that you generate it's an act of vulnerability and it's also a team sport. And so the the chemistry in the room needs to be safe for everyone to feel I can share something I'm thinking that's kind of half-baked in my head and not be laughed at or ridiculed or dismissed. And so really a big part of the work I'm doing is around ensuring that companies are setting up cultures of not tolerance, which is how it used to look, but treasuring the gifts of every single person in their industry, giving them the assurance that the things about them that are different, maybe even weird, and I say weird as like a good thing, is welcome. And you just don't make a culture like that overnight. And so this is a sustained effort that has to happen inside companies, especially innovative companies, to ensure that they are creating that psychological safety where people feel they don't have to cover or code switch or camouflage or in any other way diminish who they are. And you're right, Anne, that that comes at every age. I mean, I would love to see our youngest contributors feel that sense of the welcomeness of their ideas right out of the gate, no matter how young they are, no matter how much experience they have in the field. Their ideas often can be the most fresh because they haven't yet been kind of indoctrinated into the way it's always been done. That's right. And I totally agree with you that it falls squarely on the shoulders of leadership. And I'm wondering if there's advice we might have for young people on how to like be brave and take that act of vulnerability and put the ideas in the room. And I'm just wondering what we can do to help people. Yes, leadership needs to step up. What else can we do to really encourage people to step forward into their own truths? Mm, what a beautiful invitation. I'm trying to think about kind of the advice I give to my sons because they're you know 19 and 24. I send them this little newsletter that I write <laughs> that they can't unsubscribe from. It's just for them. <laughs> <laughs> called the Mamo instead of the Memo. And it's just random things that I see. But essentially what I'm doing is I'm kind of coaching them from afar in things I think are interesting or things that are happening in the world, I hope they're paying attention to, or just even recipes that I can't wait to cook for them when they come home. But I think it's that way of kind of telling them, I'm still your mother, I'm still your mentor. And I hope that you are still learning and challenging yourself as a person. And so, I mean, when you asked me, how did I get so confident? And I credited it to mentors, the first people in the job. And so I do think that if you're a young person, to try to seek out your believers, the people that see the promise in you, the people that you feel safe with and spend time with them and ask them for help when you need it. That's another thing. Gosh, I really, really feel like asking for help is looked at in this world as a sign of weakness when in reality, it's 
the whole purpose of the gig. And I, I remember saying that to my younger son the first time he hit a life block and he was, he was embarrassed and ashamed that he couldn't get through it on his own. And I remember telling him that shame, I think it was Brene Brown turned that into an acronym of should have already mastered everything. And I said, the whole point of life is to create a tribe of people who believe in you and who will be there for you and for you, for them and create that tribe before you need it. But when you do need it, that is why they're there. And that is why you will be there for other people when they have their dark moment. And we never know when that's going to happen or how it will look and how severe it will be. If there are young people listening to this, crazy stuff will happen to you and shitty stuff will happen to you. And it doesn't mean you're doing life incorrectly. It doesn't mean you deserved whatever happened, but you need to have assembled a group of people that can be there as your scaffolding during a time when you're feeling like you're going to collapse. And that's something, there's no shame in it. There's no blame in it. It's just the way life is. So Kat, I love what you are saying about having a group of people that is your tribe. I often refer to it as make sure you know who your peeps are. And this idea of how important it is to also be very intentional in surrounding yourself with people who build you up. They think that your dreams are awesome. They think that what you want to do and how you want to stretch is just amazing. And that makes all the difference in the world to have those people in your life. So just going back to the 3% movement for a couple of minutes. So you set out to improve that number. And I did some reading about this. You were pretty amazingly successful. So can you talk a little bit about the impact that it ultimately had? Yeah, for sure. So 3% of creative directors were women. 2012 is when we launched. That number had been at that place for 30 years. It's currently up to 29% female creative directors. So, you know, it took 10 years and it took no let up and social media amplification and inviting men deeply into the change movement. It just took a lot of work, but it was doable. It's still not 50%, which it should be, but yeah, it's, it's incredible growth. And um, it's also been an intersectional crusade. So we don't just want to see white women succeeding or one kind of white woman. I mean, there's even, there's a dramatic under-indexing of mothers in my industry. And so we want to see all kinds of creative women and non-binary creatives succeeding. And so yeah, it's had a, a dramatic impact. And um, that is so gratifying. That's amazing. And I know there's some changes right now with 3% as well. So what's happening now and, and what's next? So we've been known primarily as the 3% Conference. Our company name is officially the 3% Movement. But we put on a very kind of high production value conference, two-day conference that traveled to different cities And it was just a lot of heavy lifting to do that. It took a lot of my time and kind of like sponsor sales and putting together the programming, which elements of it, which I liked. And with the sponsor sales, I was good at. But I read a quote recently that said something like, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you want to do it. So COVID kind of became the variable that we did a fully virtual conference the summer after COVID hit. And then this past year was our 10th anniversary. And we did a hybrid event that was in person in Atlanta and then also virtual. 
And it just was so difficult from a planning perspective and from a budgeting perspective to figure out like the realities of travel. And so I made an executive decision to exit the event portion of our business. And that was reported in AdAge in March of this year. And a lot of people were upset, but I also felt really strongly that a lot of women in our industry looked to me as a role model and that I wanted to show that when something gets heavy, you put it down and I don't have to continue to do this simply because people want me to, or that's the expectation. It's like, you know, 10 years, 28 events. I feel pretty good about the contribution that the 3% team has made to this issue through an event prism. And now I really want to spend more of my waking hours and my creativity on what is next to solve for this riddle, because 29% is not 50%. And we're living in a world where social change that's at such a dizzying speed that there are a lot of other things. I mean, remote work, I feel the work that I'm doing at 11, the ad agency in San Francisco, is a lot of just making sure that whatever the remote work setup is, does not advantage or disadvantage one kind of contributor and making sure that creativity and innovation is still maximized even within these new scenarios. And so that's an enormous undertaking that will not be solved quickly. So I'm just so grateful to have the time and the space to be thinking about these things as they're happening and not be trying to plan an event. What's really resonating with me is earlier you made the comment that you're just, you're very values driven, right? It was less that it was confidence in yourself and more this just unwavering belief in your values. And that the 3% movement was one way and a big way that you executed against those values and that you invested to move this change forward. But it was, it was more than a tactic, right? It was a really, really big undertaking, but nothing's changed in terms of what you are seeking to change and what you are seeking to accomplish. It was time to come at it a different way is what I really hear you saying. And I think there's a really profound message in there. I loved your phrase, when something gets heavy, you put it down. That's not the same thing as you abandon what your mission is, or you abandon what your goal is, or you abandon it because it got too hard. It's, oh no, maybe it's the way I'm doing it is no longer the right way for me or no longer the right way for this movement. Exactly. And I think I didn't set out to run a conference for 10 years. I set out to have a one-day conference in San Francisco that turned into this kind of runaway train. And in retrospect, and I said this to our team, I said, can we just have a moment of gratitude that in the 10 years it took to build this mobilized and passionate of a community, that travel was frictionless during those 10 years. We were able to gather and we were able to bring our movement even to other countries. And that's not the case right now. And so how can we work with what's the momentum we have, the community we have, the changing issues around diversity and inclusion, which 
are really centering on remote work and how can we be in the eye of that hurricane? And so I wrote this job description for myself. Well, I didn't even know I was writing it for myself. I wrote this job description for this new job I thought needed to exist called the Creative Entrepreneur in Residence. And it would be someone that would be looking at the entire workflow and culture inside creative companies to ensure that diversity and inclusion and belonging were centered and also that corporate social responsibility on behalf of clients was infusing all of the work because that's another purpose-driven work is a huge momentum in the industry. And when I was done writing this job description, I read it over and I was like, I want this job. (laughs) So I've been piloting that for six months inside one of our founding partner agencies and I write a public facing newsletter about it. So I'm literally a rat in my own experiment and I love it. I love that there's no deliverable that I'm trying to create. I mean, ultimately, I hope I can create a curriculum for the modern creative leader, but I'm more just following where the work takes me and where the world is kind of needing reimagination. And so it's been so amazing to do this work at this point in my career and to be able to talk about it openly with other leaders that are trying to figure out their way through the darkness. So we've talked a lot about your business life and what you're building and where you're moving to the next. You touched on the fact that you are recently divorced, recently empty nested. I'm curious what's next for you Kat Gordon, personally in your life, where are you going next? What's what's coming up? Well, I am just having the most unbelievable love affair with my house. And you've been to my home. I bought it just a few months ago. It was built in 1896. It's in the historic district of downtown Napa. And I think because I spent my life as a creative, as a copywriter in the word sphere, I've always been kind of eclipsed by and surrounded by people whose visual creativity was way bigger than my own. Yet I feel like all of a sudden my house is this canvas on which I can kind of show what visually I find interesting. And that's like art and furnishings. And I love going to garage sales on the weekend and looking for just beautiful little things. I bought like an antique bar and I'm outfitting it with all these fun old glasses and things. And so I'm like re-nesting, but with a completely different list than I had when I was building a nest for my boys. It's just about how can I create a space for friendships and for personal comfort and delight and places of reunion for my boys to come home on holidays. And really, I've been spending a lot of time just trying to make my home space as delicious as possible. I want to come see your house now. I'm jealous Anne gets to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Making work sort of delicious and your home delicious. I love it. So Kat, before we go, I think back to that little 11-year-old pen pal to folks in Japan and the Netherlands and other places around the world. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could go back in time and give her any sort of advice. Is there anything you might share with her? Mm. You know, there were a lot of ways as a child where I felt like I didn't quite fit in. And some of that had to do with some stuff that happened in my childhood. Some of it had to do with the fact that I was kind of shy. But I think the thing I would tell her, little Kathy McCaw, is that if you don't feel like you fit in this world, don't worry about it because you're actually here to help create 
a better one where more people feel like they do belong, they do fit, they are welcome. I think that that's what I would tell her so that in those times where she feels social ill at ease or like she's just not cut or wired like all the other kids, I would tell her, don't worry, that'll be your superpower. That's really beautiful. So Kat, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, my delight. So I think that's going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. Thank you.